Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. There are major events in life that uh, are just so significant that we remember them for the rest of our lives. Events that shape us to become the people that we are today. Such events can be positive or negative and therefore can have consequences that are both positive and negative. Negatively, it can be a tragedy in the family, a phone call late at night that you will never forget or a natural disaster that destroys all or part of what you own. Or the first time you hear that diagnosis of a long-term illness that you know is going to impact your life and the life of your family for decades to come. Your life might be marked by the date of someone's death, the time that you had to change everything about your future, and life is never going to be the same. Positively, of course, there are such events like graduations or weddings, perhaps the first big break that you got on your career. Spiritually, we would include our salvation, at least for those of us who can remember a specific time. We would think about our salvation experience, our own encounter with God, and make no mistake about it, every salvation is an encounter with God. And we would think about that time and mark, as it were, our pre-conversion days versus our post-conversion life. I realize that for some, the salvation experience is not as dramatic as others, and so you may, may not be able to do that, but it is always an encounter with God. Well, this ancient encounter in series we've been doing, we return to this morning, and we are going to look at one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In fact, when I first had the opportunity in attending seminary many years ago and had my first preaching class and got my first assignment to make a sermon and deliver it, this is the text I went to, Isaiah chapter 6. And so my involvement with this particular encounter has gone on for many years. And make no mistake about it, this event will never be forgotten in the life of Isaiah the prophet. In fact, his entire ministry will be hinged upon this encounter that we are going to read about this morning. And I know that because as we'll see the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah will use the title, the Holy One of Israel, for the rest of his ministry. Some 26 times in this book of Isaiah, that title is used of God, and it is only found six times outside of the book of Isaiah, telling me that this encounter with God dramatically impacted his life and his ministry and was forever implanted on his mind. And what a scene it is. It is one of those moments in the Bible that is so inspiring that we're not really sure if we're supposed to be here. It's like we have accidentally stumbled upon a forbidden place 
hearing and seeing things that are so beyond what we can even put into words and certainly so beyond anything that we've experienced. For you'll notice as I read that Isaiah never really describes God. Perhaps the smoke that is surrounding the temple has blurred his vision. Perhaps he simply is not in a position to be able to look up and see God, but he never really describes God. The only description of God in this encounter is that his train has filled the temple. That's the only description that we find. And yet there is certainly plenty here about God, as we'll see shortly. So today we are going to see God's salvation from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, as long as we understand that this may or may not be Isaiah's salvation experience, because it comes in chapter 6, and there is a lot of theological debate that we won't go into as to why this is found in chapter 6. But because of that, some believe that this is more a commissioning of service for Isaiah rather than a salvation experience. But regardless, it does for us become a paradigm of what it means to encounter God and be saved and what that means following salvation. My only regret this morning is that this does fall on a Sunday when we have so much else to do. Because I certainly do not want to shortchange this encounter with God. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am lost. I've got this memorized in the King James, which is why reading in the ESV confuses me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. I mentioned a moment ago that there is no real description of God in this encounter, so my first point might seem a little strange, but my first point is the truth that salvation sees God. I am, of course, not talking about a visible seeing. I am not talking about visions or dreams. I am not saying that you must have something like that in order for salvation to occur. I'm simply saying that we do, through the eyes of faith, have to come to an understanding. It might be a basic level understanding, but nevertheless, we have to come to an understanding of who God is. 
No one says that you have to be a deep theologian, but you do have to know something about God. Isaiah is in Jerusalem. That is where he lives and ministers. This is during the time of the divided kingdom, and so he is part of the southern kingdom of Judah. We know from other scriptures that he had a wife and children, and according to verse 1 of the, this book, he is ministering during the reigns of four kings of Judah. This specific encounter, as you saw, takes place during the first of those four kings, a king by the name of Uzziah, only Uzziah has now died. And we know specifically that his death occurred in 740 B.C. He had a long and prosperous reign of 52 years. He was the best king since King Solomon. Judah prospered under his efficient administration and his effective military leadership. It is interesting that absolutely no other prophet dates a prophecy or an event by the death of an individual, but Isaiah does it twice. This is also during the time period when Assyria is becoming more and more of a power. In fact, if you know your dates, Uzziah dies in 740. It will be less than 20 years until Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them captive. And so with the rise of a foreign power and with the death of a good king, there is going to be anxiety and uncertainty about the future. In fact, Isaiah is also prophesying that the same thing is going to happen to the southern kingdom of Judah if they do not repent and turn from their ways and return to God. And he even specifically says, though Babylon is not a power at this time, he specifically prophesies that Babylon is going to rise and they too will conquer Jerusalem. Or not too, but they will conquer Jerusalem as Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom. Many believe Isaiah is the richest in theology of any Old Testament book. And Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament prophet. In fact, listen to this. Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than all of the other Old Testament, uh, all the other Old Testament prophets combined. And so Isaiah sees God, not in a physical way, or he does, he does but we do not, it's probable that he is in the temple worshiping God as he did on a regular basis. When suddenly God reveals himself in a way that he has never done to Isaiah before. So what does Isaiah see? Well, first of all, Isaiah sees the sovereignty of God. Uzziah may no longer be on the throne, but God is. And it is a throne that is high and lifted up. In the midst of all of the uncertainty and anxiety about their future, God is reminding Isaiah of who is really in charge and thus who can really be trusted. Now, a few weeks ago in this series, we looked at Job under the title of God's sovereignty. And so I will not spend a lot of time here this morning. But I am saying we need to be reminded Though we may not understand what the word sovereignty means and therefore what the sovereignty of God means, we need to be reminded that God is still on his throne and God still is in charge. And thus he has a right to dictate not only the terms by which we come to him, but also to guide us in our lives. He has a right to reign over his creatures and his creatures include us. 
So whether or not you know what the word sovereignty means, you need to come to the place where you realize that God is in charge and I'm not. Secondly, Isaiah sees not only the sovereignty of God, but he sees the majesty of God. We get a glimpse of this in the description about God, that train of his temple, the train of his uh, robe filling the temple. Something that clearly depicts the glory and dignity of God. On a much, much smaller scale, it reminds us of the bride on a wedding day. When whether we like it or not, all eyes are on the bride. As soon as those sanctuary doors are open and we stand and turn and look at the bride, all eyes are upon her and the beauty of that moment. And in this scene, we see that all eyes are on the one who sits upon the throne. We see the majesty as well in the presence of the seraphim. This is the only time this particular form of this word is found in the Old Testament. Clearly, they are some sort of supernatural beings. The the basis of the word means something like fiery. They have two wings with which they are covering their face in all likelihood because they cannot look upon the glory and the majesty of God. They have two wings with which they cover their feet, a reference that is a, a little more difficult for us to pin down. And they have two wings with which they fly. But all of their focus is on the occupant of the throne, not on they themselves. And then thirdly, we see not only the sovereignty of God and the majesty of God, but we see the holiness of God. And this we find in that cry of the seraphim, that they are echoing back and forth. The scene is an unnumberable amount of seraphim, some of them crying, holy, 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 echoed by others crying the same thing. Very much like what maybe some of you will go witness here in a few weeks in the Smoky Mountains where the fireflies will synchronize. One of the only two places in the world where this takes place. Half of the mountain will will light up and then the other half of the mountain will echo them and that'll go back and forth. And that's the scene we have here with the seraphim echoing their own cry of the holiness of God. This threefold repetition is the Highest superlative in the Hebrew language. There is no other way to to speak so greatly about anything. And in fact, it's almost as, as if we can't say enough about the holiness of God. We can't describe it in good terms. And so we simply say, holy, holy, holy. The only instance in the Bible of a threefold adjective being used of God. Holiness, of course, means that God is separate from and apart from sin. Speaking of his moral perfection, purity, and righteousness. And as a result, because we are sinners, we are separated from God. He cannot condone sin, nor be in the presence of sin, nor be in the presence of those who are sinners. All of which means we have a significant obstacle to overcome if we are to ever be right with God. And so there is a fourth thing that that Isaiah sees about God. He sees the glory of God. And notice that this glory is not confined to the temple as they once believed. No, his glory is seen everywhere in both his people and his creation. And this glory is the outward evidence of his holiness. Glory which can be seen testifies of his holiness that we cannot see. The totality of it leading to the shaking of the temple. 
Again, when it comes to our own salvation, I'm not saying or nor implying that we have to grasp all of this in order to be saved. You don't have to understand what those words mean. You don't have to fill out a paperwork on the sovereignty, the majesty, the holiness and glory of God. But you do have to see God in the sense that you have to come to a basic understanding of who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. The obvious question then becomes, how would one respond? Respond rightly to a scene like this. Or in other terms, how do we respond when we see God? And the answer is our second point. Salvation brings conviction. Virtually every time you hear a story about someone who has had a vision of God or a dream about God or professes to have been in the very presence of God, whether that's in a book you read or a, a movie that you happen to see or whether you know somebody personally who has claimed to have some supernatural encounter, the people always claim that God has somehow comforted them, that God has encouraged them. And I'm not saying that God does not comfort. I'm not saying that God does not encourage. If there is a place involved or associated with such an encounter, then immediately people flock to this place hoping to have a similar experience. Because of the popularity of these stories, I want you to see clearly the response of Isaiah. Because when Isaiah sees God, he immediately realizes the huge, great distance and gap between himself and God, and therefore he has no right to be there. In other words, having seen the holiness of God, he recognizes his own sinfulness and the fact that there is not an ounce of holiness in his own life, nor in those around him. So he clearly recognizes his own sinfulness and the plight of all mankind. Or as Paul says in Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah is saying the same thing when he says, woe is me. Peter had a similar experience with Jesus, as you might recall. He and his fishing companions, and by the way, they were professional anglers. They knew what they were doing. They'd been all out all night fishing and had caught nothing. And as the morning dawns, they see Jesus there. And Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the side of the boat. And, and they say, Lord, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing, but at your word, we'll do it. And they cast their nets one more time and pull up so many fish that both of their boats nearly sink as a result. And what is Peter's response on that occasion? Peter falls at the knees of Jesus and proclaims, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Up until this moment in Isaiah's encounter, he has not said a word. He's described to us what he's seen, but he has not personally said a word. His first words are, woe is me. And so the first words are words of conviction. Words of recognition of his own sinfulness. And this is indeed the proper response to an encounter with God. No excuses, no blaming, no high-fiving, just conviction and confession of sin. Which leaves Isaiah in a precarious position. He is in the presence of God and he has recognized, he has recognized that he does not belong there. He knows the huge gap that exists between a holy God and sinful men, and there is absolutely nothing that he can do about it. And so in the next two verses, Isaiah is entirely passive. He does nothing. 
All of the verbs here are, are in the passive tense. But what does Isaiah experience? Isaiah is granted forgiveness. Thirdly, salvation grants forgiveness. In a symbolic act, the seraphim bring a burning coal from the altar and touch it to Isaiah's lips. I say symbolic because, of course, the coal has no power to heal nor forgive, but it is a visual representation of what is taking place in his heart. And then the pronouncement is made about what the action represents, and what a great pronouncement it is. You are guilt-free. But how can this be possible? How can Isaiah, who has just realized the holiness of God and the sinfulness of not only himself but of all mankind, suddenly be so easily and clearly proclaimed to be forgiven and guilt-free? All without doing anything. He has done nothing but stand there in this encounter. This symbolic action has been taken upon him, not at his request. He has done nothing in this process, and yet he has said that he is forgiven. And the answer is found in the last phrase of verse 7. Your sins have been atoned for. Again, but how can that be? The word atone means that amends have been made. Restitution has been paid. In financial terms, it means that money enough to satisfy the outstanding debt has been paid. Spiritually, of course, it means that the debt of sin has been paid. Now, understand that Isaiah doesn't know nearly what we know on this side of the cross. We know that Christ has paid our sin debt on Calvary because he died for our sins and in our place. That we who are sinners owed a debt to God because it is against God that we have sinned. And the wrath of God is against sin such that God simply cannot say, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. No, the wrath of God against sin must be satisfied and must be paid for. It must be poured out. And that is what we see happening on the cross. That is why there is such anguish at Calvary, such that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been forsaken by God the Father because he's become sin for us and accepted the wrath of God in our place. It was not just a cruel death at the hand of the Romans. He was bearing our sins and satisfying the wrath of God that we deserve. And so while in this encounter it seems rather easy, it seems rather straightforward. Your sins are forgiven. You've been atoned for. We know on this side of the cross that there was much more involved. We must see this announcement through the eyes of all that God has done in Christ to secure our salvation, heal our guilt, and forgive our sins. Which means there's no reason for us to carry that guilt around. If the guilt has been taken care of, how sad for us to live under the crushing weight of past guilt when that guilt has been atoned for and forgiven. Now that is not to say that there will not be ongoing consequences for our sins. Removing the guilt is different from the consequences. Neither does it mean that there could, not, there could be issues of trust with other people or there might be positions of service that you forever forfeit because of past sins. That is different than being forgiven and the guilt taken away.
I read an article this week that said one, of, one out of three churches will experience embezzlement from someone within the church. I've pastored three churches now, and based on my three churches, that's an accurate description. Because in my first church, before I came, the treasurer of that church, and it was a small church, but the treasurer of that church had embezzled tens of thousands of dollars from the church. It was discovered. She confessed the issue. She repaid the money over time. The church forgave her. And her and her family were actually still active members when I came, and as far as I know, still are. The guilt really was taken away, but she was never made treasurer again. I mean, that wouldn't make sense, right? And there are ongoing consequences. And that's certainly, certainly true when it comes to our day. Sadly, the many, many times where issues with children, we've just seen all these precious children sing this morning, and yet there are issues with children. And when that happens, forgiveness can be granted but access to children in the future is not. That's two different things. And so Isaiah's guilt and our guilt can be forgiven. We don't have to live with the weight of that. But that's not the same as ongoing consequences. But the final thing we need to notice is that salvation results in service. This is a passage of Scripture that we often use as a missions passage, and I, I've done the same thing. In verse 8, the Lord speaks for the first time. This is a unique encounter in the sense that there is not a lot of dialogue between the individual and God. In the other encounters we've looked at, there's far more dialogue. But here, God has not spoken yet in this encounter until verse 8. And in verse 8, he says, who can I send? Who will go? But notice at this point, there is no specific mission. Send where? Go where? Do what? We don't know any of that at this point, and neither does Isaiah, which makes Isaiah's response all the more impressive. Because Isaiah doesn't say, well, tell me what it is and I'll pray about it. Now, that's an appropriate response in some places. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Isaiah does not say, well, what amount of sacrifice am I going to have to make in order to fulfill whatever you're asking me to do? And I'm not saying that there are not times when we, we are supposed to count the cost. But Isaiah doesn't do any of that. Instead, he eagerly enlists and says, I'll go. Here am I. Send me. You know, when I was in school, there were basically two types of people. When the teacher would ask a question or want to volunteer, there was two groups of people. The first group I was in, and that is we avoided eye contact with the teacher. Because we thought if we looked down at our book or our notes and we weren't looking at the teacher, then they would never call on us. And then there was the other group of people that always had their hand raised, always wanted to answer. And of course, my group hated that group. <laughs> Isaiah's in that group. Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Doesn't matter where it is, doesn't matter what you want me to do. We find out later in the chapter all of those details. But at this point, Isaiah knows none of that. He simply says, I am ready to go. And that is the proper response to salvation. He realizes that in light of what he has seen and in light of what he has experienced and in light of the gift that God has given him, his life now belongs to God. And thus he is ready and willing to serve God in any way God sees fit.
True salvation naturally results in service. Service that is not coerced, service that is not manipulated, but grateful service to a gracious God. Neither is this service some type of repayment for salvation given, as if there is something we could do to pay for our conversion. Instead, it is service in response to a, with a new heart, no longer selfish and inward-looking, but grateful and willing to go. So I have two simple questions for you this morning. Have you experienced the encounter that we call salvation? Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking if you've had visions. I'm not asking if you've had dreams. I'm not asking if you're a theologian who knows everything there is to know about God. I'm simply asking you, have you come to the place where you have seen God as he has revealed himself in Scripture? You then have been convicted of your own sin in light of who God is, and you have received the salvation that he graciously gives as a result, which means your guilt has been taken away, your sins have been atoned for, again, not by, based on any merit on your own, but freely given by faith in your trust in Christ. One of the ways you can know all, if all of this has occurred is by looking at the results, if there are any. And the results are, are you serving the Lord? That's the second question. Now, I'm not saying that's a foolproof plan, but I'm saying we see in this paradigm of salvation, we see that when Isaiah sees God, he sees himself as a sinner, and when he discovers that God is gracious enough to forgive him of his sins, Isaiah is willing and ready to serve. So I'm asking you if you're serving the Lord. If you're physically and mentally able, salvation always results in service. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you give us in Christ, freely given, but costly in, in being earned by Christ. We pray now that once we see you in salvation and see the great gulf that exists between your holiness and our sinfulness, that we would be like Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. That's our prayer in Jesus' name, who provided our salvation. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond. Mm -hmm.